Hello, everybody. As I look at what's going on around us, the thing that really concerns me now is our economy. We have still not recovered from 2008, and we are entering an economic period that is incredibly challenging. It has already started off challenging, but it's going to get a lot more challenging. And so for me, the next concern is not necessarily the virus itself, but how we recover from it and how we can get out of it with a booming economy uh, and lots of opportunity and jobs and fulfillment for, for as many people as possible. This episode is on both my podcast and YouTube, so you can watch it in either place. Just look for Candidate Everyone in either place. It's called Betty and the Post-Corona Boom. So, so far, the economic news has been absolutely horrible. Uh, we've obviously had some very big-name bankruptcies. If you have a lot of debt going into a complete shutdown and you're a retailer or a restaurant or a car rental place like Hertz, uh, you're going to find yourself in an enormous amount of trouble. In addition to the big top-name businesses that have gone down, like JCPenney and Neiman Marcus, Hertz is expected to as well, Chesapeake Energy, we have massive numbers of small businesses, particularly restaurants, that have collapsed. They've got really, as they see it in many cases, no clear way forward. Now, if the Moderna vaccine works, then they can open up again, but it'll still be quite a while, and there's a lot of debt payments and a lot of employee payments to make that aren't going to be made. So we are in trouble with a capital T. We have got some serious issues. We need to revive our economies, not just for the sake of making money, but also for the sake of our health care. People who are unemployed have much, much uh, higher rates of mortality. Uh, they die much earlier. Um, and we end up with uh, enormous other costs that are going to be borne by uh, our economies if we can't get ourselves back on track. Now, the standard recipe for getting ourselves back on track is a stimulus how many trillions of dollars can we throw at a stimulus and then that'll get everything going? It's a bit like trying to defibrillate a dead horse. It doesn't work very well. So what I'm suggesting is, is that while a stimulus is a nice thing, perhaps it can forestall collapse by getting people cash they need so they can make their rent and mortgage payments, but it is not going to lead to a boom. In fact, it will do the opposite. It will make it harder to have a boom because we're going to have so much underlying debt to pay for the experience we're going through now. We need to create an environment of aggressive growth. We need to create an environment in which we can make our economy flourish. So how do we do this? Well, let's keep going. If we look at the history of the U.S. taxes and benefits, we can see history is not exactly recent. Tariffs have been around forever. The U.S. income tax has been around since 1913, Social Security since 1933. VAT, which is not in the U.S., but it's invented in France, has been around since 1954. It is the most recent tax innovation of any scale um, that I know of. And then we have Medicare and Medicaid, which were brought in in 1965. All of these systems are antiquated and old and are using reporting mechanisms that are no longer uh, the limit of what's possible. And in fact, these antiquated systems are gumming up our economy in some pretty drastic ways. We need to get relief through simplicity. With the virus, we did this by allowing doctors to work across state borders, allowing health facilities to open new health facilities without a lot of uh, additional approvals and time taken, uh, allowing medications to be trialed much more quickly than before. Uh, Moderna's vaccine is only a few months in. Normally, this is something like a five or 10 year process, um, and they've got uh, a vaccine that's already being considered for. Uh, for rollout, uh, there's phase one trial testing. So what we've done is we've gotten rid of a lot of the friction in our medical system in order to enable us to respond to this virus quickly. Why? Because this virus is a huge thing. It's a huge pandemic. It's a huge problem. Well, guess what? Our economy is also a huge problem, and we need to do the same things. We need to reduce friction and enable our economy to work faster.
If you look at Uber, getting hired by Uber is easy. The transaction cost of the so-called job is extremely low. Yes, it doesn't pay very well. The benefits suck. But if we could make every job as easy as an Uber job, then it'd be much, much easier to get lots of people employed very quickly, even in the crappy environment that we find ourselves in. So let's take Betty. Betty is fictional, but you know, Microsoft had some nice heads and faces for this uh, lady here that we we're using. So I'm going to call her Betty. Betty worked in a restaurant and that job is gone. It might come back in a year or two, but for now it's gone. Now Betty can get another job helping the elderly order groceries at Friendly's Market. Okay, not a bad idea. A lot of people need help uh, ordering. Online ordering can be tough for people who are elderly. And so she can make it easier by being on the phone and talking people through it and helping them out. So instead of going online, these elderly people would call her and she'd help them do their, do their ordering and get, make sure they get their groceries. Maybe she'd help them remember what they needed at the home as well. Okay, it's a job. The problem with the job is that friendlies would only make $5 an hour for every hour that Betty would work. So basically, friendlies, friendlies can't afford to pay Betty minimum wage. And legally, they can't hire Betty for less than minimum wage. And of course, Betty wouldn't take the job because she's got an unemployment that pays more. So Friendly's doesn't hire her. There's nobody offering this service or potentially Friendly's could hire some call center in some overseas country, or maybe they could try to automate it. Of course, that's the website that they have already. But what we find is, is because you can't pay less than minimum wage, these sorts of jobs don't exist. This is the same reason that we have automated checkouts at McDonald's it's that it makes sense to pay for that equipment when the cost of people is too high. So Betty is unemployed. Just like 3 million other people, she doesn't have a job. She doesn't have an option to get one because there's nothing she can do right now that's worth more than minimum wage. So what's the challenge? The challenge is that we need to make it easier for friendlies to hire Betty and for Betty to get the money she needs to get by. And we need to do it simply, not with a gazillion forms, complex regulations, approval programs, uh, small business loan things, that, 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 that. We make it all crazy, crazy complex. This needs to be simple. Think of Uber. So two steps to this program. First step is going to scare you a bit. Second step is going to relieve that. Or if you're from the other side of the political equation, the first step is going to encourage you. And the second step is going to freak you out. Let's take a look. Step one. We replaced income, payroll, vendor collected taxes, and lots of other taxes with a simple tax system. I realize it's a bit complex in the U.S. because of state and federal tax systems, but to do the federal, the states follow. That's the way a lot of the state tax codes are written. So let's say Betty takes the job. Friendlies is allowed to offer it. Betty takes it, but her income is taxed at 25%. Straight off the top, just like garnishing wages. Friendlies doesn't need to do reporting. Friendlies doesn't need to take any of her wages or file them or anything like that. They pay $5 an hour to her bank account, and the government automatically takes $1, just like garnishing wages. Simple, simple approach to taxation. Of course, the problem is, is that Betty's earnings weren't very good before, and now they're really bad. Betty's making $4 an hour, which is $640 a month. That is not a lot of money. So what do we do about that? Well, we have step two. Step two is to replace welfare, unemployment, the minimum wage, and a whole bunch of other programs that are meant to protect people with something much simpler. What do we do? We give a spending subsidy. We use spending support. So under 500 bucks of each month, the first $500 of each month, for each dollar Betty spends, the government pitches in four. So Betty spends 100 bucks for rent, maybe, for other things. The government will pitch in $400. So in this case, 
the government's automatically throwing in the money. She pays with a credit card, debit card, any electronic means of payment, and the government will say, oh, there's a transaction coming through, and we will add on our piece to it in order to make sure that Betty is subsidized. The next tranche is from $500 to $1,000. This gets 50-50 subsidy. Maybe she's buying groceries. I have no idea. And the final tranche of spending support comes in at $1,000 to $1,500, where she throws in $400 and she gets $100 back. In essence, she gets back the tax that she paid on this area. After that, the subsidy goes away. So what happens? All in all, Betty $640 in take-home pay actually spends like $1,350 in take-home pay or $8.50 after tax. Now, if Betty is living by herself, this is obviously tough. It's not impossible. If she's got kids, though, or a husband who can't work or something like that, then it becomes a little more challenging. So the program allows people to pool their support. Multiple people can be pooled. It can be parents, siblings, friends. This tax code doesn't care if you're married. You can have your best friend be the person who pools with you. But in that case, the subsidy is pooled. So instead of being the first $500 that is, gets $400, it's the first $1,000 in spending that gets $800 in subsidy. So if she has a dependent, her $640 would spend like $1,880 after tax, which is something like $1,150 an hour. And for the prototypical single mother with two kids, the $640 that she makes would spend like $1,362 an hour after tax, or $2,180. System is pretty simple from a subsidy perspective. Now, if you're richer, then you don't, the subsidy is still there because we don't want to discourage people from making a little bit of money and from spending that initial money. Instead, the taxes comes in as they spend more. So if you make $50 an hour, 40 would hit your account. If you spend $6,000, you'd end up with the same $750 subsidy, but you'd pay $1,600 in tax and your net tax would be $850 a month. Of course, if you pool, it could be lower because the subsidy would be increased. Make 100 bucks an hour, 80 bucks would hit your account. Same thing, your net tax would be $24.50 a month, but you'd end up with a situation in which you're being taxed, but again, no income, no payroll, all that kind of stuff is simplified. Just in your bank account, you get the tax pulled out, and then when you spend, you get that subsidy for your initial spending. What about retirement? Retirement, existing social security balances would be maintained, but spending from social security or anything else you use to save would be subsidized like any other spending. So if your spending goes down when you're an elderly person, then what will happen is, is that you will be able to take advantage of that subsidy just like anybody else. Um, so that's the basic idea here. It's pretty straightforward. Now, when we talk about real quickly, we talk about medical care in another episode. What about businesses? Well, we want to keep it simple. So businesses are taxed in exactly the same way. Money comes into the bank accounts, 25% siphoned off. When they spend on business purchases and business expenses, which I define as things that are intended to generate cash flow, then they get that 25% back. So basically, they're only taxed on their positive net cash flow. And for this purpose, dividends are not revenue for the owners. So if a business makes a million dollars and they've already paid tax on that million dollars, when they distribute it to the owners of the business, then they don't, the owners don't pay an additional 25% tax, revenue tax on that. They're only paying it on the initial business income. This again is about making it simple and not discouraging people from forming into associations to do things more efficiently. So what are the benefits? Number one, Betty is doing useful, fulfilling work. She's in the workforce. And of course, number two, Friendlies is providing a useful resource for old people. Paperwork? Well, there are no filings 
unless you work with cash or other forms of value, in which case it's not coming on electronically, in those cases you'd have to file. But generally, it's no filings. Everything's by transaction, not by period. You don't have a quarterly filing. You don't have an annual filing. And you don't have to go through all the rigmarole and structuring and games people play in order to calculate income or deductions. And of course, auditing is very interesting. Normally, you have a lot of gray market at the bottom paying people in cash for gardening, for house cleaning, for babysitting, these sorts of things. Well, in this case, the, the gardeners, the house sitters, and the, the house cleaners, and the babysitters will want to be paid in cash because otherwise they can't explain the spending he gets in the subsidy. So what you end up with is, is that as you go further down the, uh, the tree, the cash will be harder and harder to hide because people at the bottom want to have it disclosed. And if you see spending at the bottom that can't be explained, you can trace it right back up and figure out where people were doing things that they were hiding from the system. And so you actually end up, although it's a bit of a mind thing to play with, I can walk through some cases that people want, you end up with a very good auditing system. So there's a couple concerns. One of the concerns, of course, which I don't have a slide for, is that this system is hard to implement with state and federal. I talked about that before. You do federal first, a lot of the states will follow very quickly. All a state has to do is tack on an additional percentage onto the withdrawal system. The, uh, the uh, other complexity that we have is medical benefits, which we'll talk about in another episode. Um, but there is an overriding concern people have when they say, ah, you're going to get rid of the minimum wage. Uh, and that is, is that people will suddenly be raced to the bottom and not be able to make any money at all. The counterexample for this is Switzerland. Switzerland has no minimum wage, but 98.7% of full-time workers take home more than $37,000 a year. Um, actually, the percentage at the very bottom there is pretty low as well. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons for this, but the main reason is because is you can't get Swiss operating a call center because they can make more money doing other things. Same thing here. When the economy approves, Betty will find a more productive job and she will move on. And when friendlies can't find another Betty to do the work, they'll either stop offering the service, they'll offshore it, or they'll automate it. They don't have a choice. They won't be able to hire local labor to do what Betty was doing. So this automatically takes up the slack when the economy sucks, but then as the economy improves, you'll be able to see a shift. Now, of course, you could also see a shift in the benefit scheme uh, in the ratios that are used. Those can vary from state to state or over time based on the situation you'll find yourself in. So basically this ensures that we have a functioning economy even in an extreme contraction like what we're going through right now. Sum it up, we have an economic emergency. Unemployment is over 20%. Tens of millions of people are not adding anything to the economy. Joblessness eats at people who don't have jobs. I know I've been there. Um, I've been there for quite some periods of time before, actually. And it also eats at our productive capacity. People who get back into the workforce are rusty. But in addition, while they're out of the workforce, of course, they're not doing any work. And businesses are battening down their hatches. The risk of hiring, the dangers of hiring, the challenges of hiring mean that people are trying as hard as they can to conserve cash. We need to make it easier to have businesses that they can take a risk. They can say, listen, we're not sure this is going to be worth much. We're going to start off at a low wage, and then we're going to gradually increase it as, the, as we see uh, benefits from it. So this is exactly the sort of time in which we need these sorts of emergency measures and dramatically, dramatic simplification. And I would suggest that after the economic catastrophe is passed and we're back in good times, is the kind of thing we might discover we actually want to keep. So what can you do? It's simple. Share the presentation, subscribe to my channel, and watch out for future presentations on healthcare and education. Thank you very much for your time. Here are the photo credits.